One thing I love about the story as we've been journeying through the Bible is everyone we've encountered in the story experienced failure. Everyone, at some time or another, went against God's will or failed in some way. And I find that so comforting. It's not that I like to hear people fail, but uh, it shows that I'm not alone. And God is greater than my failure. And He works in spite of and sometimes even through my failures. Amen? Amen. Now, one thing we've seen in the last several chapters now, the Israelites have epically failed God. Over and over, they reject Him and follow other gods. They become selfish, mean, and greedy, and perverse. And God finally removed His hand of blessing from them and said, okay, have it your way. And the northern kingdom is wiped out by Assyria. Then the southern kingdom was exiled into Babylon for 70 years, and they were forced to live where they didn't belong because of their failure and their sin. So last week we were in Babylon, we were exiled with Daniel. Today's chapter is about the return from exile back to the promised land, back to Jerusalem. And a very simple definition of exile, I would say, is being forced to live where you don't belong. Last week we talked about all of us are living in exile to a certain extent. We're all longing to go home. There's a city yet to come, the new Jerusalem that is our eternal home, and we long to be there. Some of you long to be reunited with loved ones. And that's what the Israelites are doing in this chapter. They long to go back home, to be in Jerusalem, their capital city. Politically, things have changed. Since last week, Babylon is overtaken by the Persian Empire. Cyrus, the king of Persia, allows the Jews to go back to the Promised Land and rebuild the temple. The second best time of the week for me is now. I love Sunday mornings. Uh, after I get up and get going. I don't like when the alarm goes off, but I like it once I get here and get into my routine. It's just exciting. I love being around God's people and the privilege of preaching. Sunday worship is the second best time of the week. The best time of the week is Sunday noon when I get to go home. Uh, That's just about heaven, especially if the Packers are playing. Just the best. Now, when you go on a trip, the two best times are when? When you leave and when you get to come home. Well, for 70 years, the Jews are homeless. How many of you were not here 70 years? You were not on this planet 70 years ago. That's a whole bunch of us. Oh, boy. Okay. So most of you aren't aware, don't remember these days. The average cost of a new home 70 years ago is $34.50. Average wages, $2,400 a year. Gallon of gas, 15 cents. Average rent, 50 a month. Loaf of bread, 10 cents. Unemployment, 1.2%. Cost of a stamp, three cents. And in the World Series, St. Louis defeats St. Louis. Cardinals beat the Browns. Also in 1944, I don't have these on the board, it was D-Day, of course. FDR was re-elected president. Best picture was Casablanca. Inventions include orbit gum, kidney dialysis, and sunscreen. So a lot has changed and happened in 70 years. So for 70 years, they're away from home, and now they get to finally go back. In Ezra 1, 1 through 3, it's page 263 in your story. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed to me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with him. So God moves the heart of Cyrus, who's not a believer. He's a pagan. God sometimes works through people that don't follow him. 50,000 people returned to Jerusalem, which sounds like a good number, but it's not really a huge number. It's just a remnant because hundreds of thousands have been removed or killed. Cyrus not only lets them go back, he gives them resources to get home, to go home and to rebuild the temple. 
Now, the temple is a visible reminder that God wants to be with his people. The temple wasn't in a far-off place. It wasn't up in the mountains or out in the woods somewhere. It was right smack dab in the middle of the city. And when the Jews walked by the temple, it was a reminder to them that God wants to be in their neighborhood. God wants to be with us, just like he was with Adam in the garden. Without the temple, in a sense, God was not really there. Now, he's there, of course, but there's something missing. Where do the priests do their sacrifices? Without the temple, there's still a feeling of exile. It's not really home without the temple. So they're excited to get started on building it. Ezra 3, verse 1, says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening sacrifices. So they're assembled as one. They're united in this. They build the altar first so they can get the sacrifice and worship started as God had commanded. So they're doing well. The excitement is high, but chapter 4, verse 4, page 265. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Their enemies are threatened by the nation of Israel reestablishing themselves, so the enemies do all they can to discourage God's people, frustrate their plans. They write letters to the king of Persia and do everything they can stop them, and finally the king does order them to stop. So in 424, chapter 4, verse 24, says, Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So they get off to a great start. They face some obstacles and opposition. For 16 years, the work is stalled. For six years, they just sputter. They can't get materials. They run into obstacle after obstacle. And then for 10 years, nothing at all happens. So they stop and give up another failure. Satan has a lot of weapons. Persecution, ridicule, deception, peer pressure, cultural accommodation, temptation... But one that's very powerful is discouragement. Don't underestimate the negative power of discouragement. Now, I like this definition of discouragement. It's courage that has been dissed. You lose courage. You know, a discouraged Christian will become a weak Christian. You may be loving and patient and kind and very generous, but if you're discouraged, you're not going to have a lot of joy and you're not going to have much faith. You seldom see discouraged Christians with high energy and getting a lot of things done. When you're discouraged, you tend to pull back. You tend to withdraw. Man, I get discouraged. Just ask Ellen sometime. In fact, I think discouragement's the number one temptation for ministers and probably for missionaries as well. I remember telling my mentor once, I think I'd rather be a shoe salesman than a preacher. And I hate feet. So it, it, it happens. And it's not just for ministers. I know all of you, you know, if you're a teenager, you know about discouragement. If you're married, you know about it. If you have parents, if you're a parent, you know about it. If, if you're a retiree, you know about discouragement. Young or old, we've all had it. You know the famous hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, has a verse in it says, We should never be discouraged. It's just not very realistic. Jesus himself got fed up and discouraged with his disciples. So the Israelites start well. 
And it's easy to get excited when you start something new. It's easy to start well. We all make New Year's resolutions, you know, like I'm going to get back to church this year, but then the first week it's snow and cold, and then the next week it's snow and cold, and then the next week, and I'll get to it eventually. We started the story last fall, and a lot of people brought materials and got into small groups in Sunday school, but then it becomes a chore, and boy, the Bible's long, and there's a lot of chapters, and I'd like to know the Bible, but, you know, discouragements happen when we get fatigued. You know, the work is hard and long. The work on the temple was draining and tough. When we get frustrated, there's obstacles and setbacks. They face political maneuverings and letters to the king, and the king vacillates back and forth, just a lack of progress. And then when we get afraid, there were threats to them and their family, and they wonder, where's God in this, and when's, when's God going to do something about this? And finally, they just stop. It's just naturally a bogged down and discouraged in any important endeavor. In fact, the more important the endeavor the more God is going to be honored or glorified and proclaimed in your life, the greater will be the resistance. The more you try to put God in the center of your life, in the center of your family, you can expect some obstacles because the forces of hell do not want you turning your life over to God. So you're going to have some, some discouraging times. For 16 years, the building of the temple is stopped. God gets put on the back burner. They hadn't become notorious sinners. They just got discouraged. And then they become self-centered, and then they start procrastinating, and they just never get around to doing what they knew they needed to do for 16 years. Now, let me show you what can happen in 16 years. Let's see Jared now. Now, this was last summer, actually, his wedding picture. Let's have Jared 16 years ago. He was cute at one time, wasn't he? Okay. Look, look, look at Logan now. What a good-looking guy. Look at Logan 16 years ago. Had a beard when he was three years old. It's amazing. Okay, Rob and Jill, this is good. That's them now. And Rob with hair. I've never seen. Oh, that's cool. Laura, today with Mike, of course. And Laura, 16 years ago. I'm guessing that's Ashton, 16 years ago. Yeah, okay. Teresa today. And Teresa, 16 years ago. <laughs> she is amazing. <laughs> So for 16 years, the Israelites put off the things of God. They're discouraged, and that turned into procrastination. Yeah, remove her picture. Okay, there's been studies on procrastination, and for you who are college students, about 80 to 95% of college students are considered procrastinators. 80 to 95%. In 2002, Americans paid $473 million in taxes because of mistakes they made because they put off filing to the last minute, so... If you haven't made your appointment, do it now. Most Americans don't have enough money for retirement because they procrastinated, put off saving during their working life. Most men put off going to the doctor, and I found out a lot of women do too. Procrastinators have higher stress levels and more household accidents than non-procrastinators. Israel is procrastinating. So God finally sends a prophet to speak to them to let them know what God thinks of their neglect of the temple. Haggai, chapter 1, verse 2, page 266. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's, the Lord's house. Their attitude is, we'll get back to it someday, but now is not the time. You know, we'll get to the things of God later, after we get our house together, after we get my life together, you know, then we can serve God. After I win the lottery, then I'll be generous. I've heard that so much, it's almost comical. These people say, now is not the time. We will someday, just not today. One of the great enemies of faith is procrastination. 
How many have put off what they needed to do and they know they need to? I know I need to read the Bible. I know I need to be baptized. I know I need to whatever. And I'll do it tomorrow. And tomorrow never comes. He who hesitates is lost. That's true for salvation. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Someone once said, and I had to think about this a little bit, but it's true. Delay is the deadliest form of denial. When you delay or put something off, you're saying no. We have good intentions, but in the end, we have said no to things we know we should do. In 2011, some Americans were asked about what they struggled with as far as major temptations. And uh, they were asked what they struggled with often or sometimes. And I was a little surprised at the outcome of this. The number one temptation that Americans confessed to was worrying, 60%. Said often or most of the time, they worry. Now, that's a lot of anxiety. But also at 60%, tied for the highest was procrastinating and putting things off. 60% said procrastinating was a problem. And it was a problem for them more than eating too much. That was 55%. Spending too much time on media was 44%. Being lazy, 41%. Spending money more than they could afford, 35%. Procrastinating was a bigger issue than gossiping or being jealous or viewing pornography and sexually explicit material or abusing alcohol or drugs. Procrastination was the number one temptation right along with worry. There's an old story that said that Satan once called to him his emissaries and said he wanted to send one of them to earth to aid men and women in the ruination of their souls. And he asked which one of these emissaries wanted to go. And one of them stepped forward and said, I will go. And Satan said, well, if I send you, what will you tell the children of men? He said, I'll tell the children of men that there is no heaven. Satan said, they will not believe you, for there is a bit of heaven in every human heart. In the end, everyone knows that right and good must have victory. You may not go. Then another came forward, darker and fouler than the first, and Satan said, If I send you, what will you tell the children of men? He said, I will tell them there is no hell. Satan looked at him and said, Oh no, they will not believe you. For in every human heart there's a thing called conscience, an inner voice, which testifies to the truth that not only will good be triumphant, but evil will be defeated. You may go. You may not go. Then one last creature came forward, this one from the darkest place of all, and Satan said to him, And if I send you, what will you say to men and women to aid them in the ruination of their souls? He said, I will tell them there is no hurry. Satan said, go. If I had a dime for every person who said, I know I should, I will someday, I'd be a rich man. Procrastination is denial. It is saying no to God. But the Bible says today is the day. See, in building the temple, they said, we'll get back to it. When things calm down, when things get smoother and easier, we'll get around to it for 16 years. They said, no. Then Haggai 1 verse 3 says, Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while his house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. God says you give careful thought. Now when I hear that, see that phrase, it sounds like there's going to be something here I don't want to hear. It sounds like a warning. Give careful thought. You think about what you're doing here. If you take care of your things and let the things of God be neglected, you watch it. 
This procrastination is why you're planting and you're not harvesting. You eat, but you don't ever have enough. You drink, you're never full. You're in wages, you have purses with holes in it. Now, he's talking about material terms here. Okay, and you might think, well, that's not me. I'm blessed materially and I'm okay. My procrastination hasn't hurt me. Well, it has. Just maybe in other ways. You are not being and doing what God has in store for you. Why are the Israelites struggling? They, they, they thought when they go back to the promised land, it'll all be wonderful and all that, but they're struggling. And God says, because you have neglected my things, my house. How's that working for you? You're taking care of your own stuff. Something's out of sorts. The priorities are wrong. Does that sound familiar? I'm going to take care of my stuff first. I've got to watch out for my things. And then we wonder why deep down things just aren't quite right. The first and the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart and soul and mind. Get that one right. Start there. Then verse 7 in Haggai says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. There's that phrase again. Give careful thought. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of the heaven, you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and all the labor of your hands. You see what happens when we treat God's mission as secondary or as an option? We wonder why... Things are flat or stagnant, maybe going the wrong way, and things aren't working out just right. Our priorities are not right. God turns off the rain on the Israelites. For us, sometimes life just doesn't work. It seems like we're spinning our wheels and never crosses our mind that we have neglected the things of God. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. God was on their to-do list, but he was not at the center. Ellen and I... You know, we talk once in a while, like all of you do, about getting different things done at the house. You know, the carpet's old and you know, various things need updating. We struggle with that, just to be honest, because God's work is a lot more important than us getting new carpet. Now, I want to invest in eternal things. Ellen wants to invest in eternal things and not just stuff that's going to wear out. And we both know if we start putting our wants first instead of God's kingdom, we're in trouble. I'm not saying new carpet's evil. You got carpet, you know, that's not terrible, or fixing up the house. But would you at least consider asking yourself, what would God want us to do? And what would we do if God were really first? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these other things will be given to you well as well. Now, in that context, Jesus is talking about food and shelter and clothing. I mean, those things are all very important. But he says, even more important than those is seek first his kingdom and all these others will be added to you. C.S. Lewis, I like the way he puts it. If you put first things first, you get second things thrown in. If you put second things first, you lose both the first and second things. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God. Hallelujah. They obey. They fear God. Now they'd failed, but they came back from their failure they repent and turn back to him and notice God says, I will be with you. I am with you. 
What's holding you back? Causing you to procrastinate or put God on the back burner. Maybe it's discouragement. Maybe you're just fatigued or out of energy. Maybe there's a frustration or maybe you're afraid. There's fear of failure. Maybe you're just stubborn or selfish. And say, I'm going to take care of my things first. They feared the Lord, which means they put God first. I feel weird saying this. I shouldn't even have to say it to the church, but I think it needs to be said. Putting God first is not bad news. I think a lot of people think, well, if I put God first, then my needs get put on the back burner. Yeah, but that's the best thing for us. Getting new carpet is not the most important thing in your life. I have found that one of the best things I can do is to resign as the general manager of the universe. I have found that when I quit trying to be God, life gets a whole lot better. When I start fearing God instead of playing God, it removes a whole lot of stress. I, I am not God. This church is not my church. It is his church. You know? And before I resigned as God, I felt like Atlas, you know, carrying the whole world on my shoulders and carrying the whole church on my shoulders. And every so often I'm tempted to become God again, and it's all on me. But we are not God. We were not created to be God. We were created to serve God. And putting God first is actually good news. It means I don't have to be responsible for everything. So let God be God. Let God take those pressures and those problems and those people and those critics and whatever situation you have, because He is God. Let Him be God. One thing I love about when I was a kid, I always had parents who I knew would pr protect me and I could trust. Now, I feared my parents, but I knew they loved me. And now as an adult, I need to be a child again. Jesus told us, become as little children. You, you need that parent that you can both fear and trust. And God says, I'll be with you. And I knew. I just had that confidence because of my parents. I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you're a procrastinator and you put God on the back burner. But wherever you're at, I'd like to ask you to just pray a prayer and be honest and confess whatever it is. Because you've failed in some, we've all failed in some ways. And then commit to God and say, God, you're going to be first. You've been on the back burner long enough and I've been procrastinating. And I'm going to get my world back in order, which means you're going to be first. And I'm going to let you be God because you are greater than any of my failures. Let's pray. Father, I pray today that we will see that procrastinating is a way of saying no. And that we will repent and say yes. Putting you on the back burner, making you second or third, and all, it just doesn't work. And, and like, let us, like Israel, repent and fear you and make you and your things first. But Lord, we also want to thank you for being greater than our failure. We've all done it, we've all failed, and we all lean on your grace. The grace that comes through Jesus, our Lord, our Messiah, and our Savior. In Jesus we pray.